and I am a member here at ARC. If you are joining us for the first time, I want to welcome you uh, to our church. Um, I hope that you are encouraged by the worship service, and I hope that you are encouraged by the word this morning. Um, as we say here at Anacosta River Church, we take the gospel serious, but we do not take ourselves serious. Um, if you are here this morning and you need a Bible, uh, there will be individuals in the aisles uh, that will assist you um, with your Bibles. Um, if you are joining us for the first time this morning, we are beginning a series on a journey toward becoming a trauma-informed congregation. What does it mean to be or to create a trauma-informed congregation? Well, I'm glad that you asked. All right. Creating a trauma-informed care space is essential to the healing and health outcomes for individuals who have experienced any sort of traumatic event. There are several key elements to a traumatic-informed congregation, one of the essentials being safety, truth, trustworthiness, transparency, collaboration, accountability, and love. This sort of space engenders a culture whereby people are able to bring the whole of themselves into Christian community and be loved toward health and living a Christ-centered life. It changes the narrative of what is wrong with you to what has happened to you, thus giving way to a transformative life in Christ Jesus. The topic of mental illness, as you might imagine, within the context of the local church, can be a difficult topic to broach. Trauma is an especially difficult topic to discuss because of its potential to produce in our bodies a chronicity often lingering with seemingly no hope for reprieve. Trauma can impact an individual at any age throughout their lifespan and can manifest itself as physical, mental, spiritual, or substance abuse issues. So again, I say, why is this topic important for us to discuss within the local church context? Well, according to the CDC, in the United States, 61% of men and 51% of women report exposure to at least one lifetime traumatic event. And 90% of the clients in public behavioral health care settings have experienced some form of trauma. And if that trauma goes unaddressed, people with mental illness and addictions will have poor physical health outcomes and ignoring trauma can hinder their recovery. To ensure the best possible outcomes, all care within all contexts must be done so in a trauma-informed way. Yesterday, I had the privilege of speaking at a panel at the DCP Summit. The panel topic was From Warfare to Healthcare, the long-lasting impact that the war on drugs has had within the African-American community. The panel participants were mayor, from the mayor's office and various community advocacy groups. According to the district crime data at a glance, this was as of November the 8th, homicide rates in the District of Columbia are up by 3%, from 142 to 146, not including the more than 500 people who have been shot in our neighborhoods but did not die. Sexual abuse has decreased by 31%, praise God for that, from 251 to 175, and robbery has been up 10% from roughly 1,700 to now 1,900. One of the local officials at the presentation in the audience stated, DC officials are always saying the overall crime rate in our city has gone down. And he said, yeah, down the street to Clay Terrace, down the street to Lincoln Heights, and to the local Popeyes. Participating on this panel helped me to underscore the importance 
of taking a collaborative approach while walking with people with trauma and the church being a prophetic voice in our efforts. The Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration defines trauma as an individual um, who's resulted in any sort of a series of events or a set of circumstances experienced by an individual as physically or emotionally harmful or life-threatening with lasting adverse effects on the individual's functioning and mental, physical, social, emotional, and spiritual well-being. Since trauma is not linear, logical, or goal-directed, its twists, its turns, its undulations can find themselves in every aspect of our lives, including work, relationships, and even, yes, the local church. Because we are people of faith, we need to be equipped to sojourn with our brothers and sisters in the faith and the greater community who have been impacted by trauma. Some of the key tenets to a trauma-informed congregation are as follows. A trauma-informed congregation realizes the widespread impact of trauma and understands potential paths for recovery. It recognizes the signs and symptoms of trauma in our congregation members. It responds by fully integrating knowledge about trauma into the DNA of our congregation, and that it also seeks to actively resist re-traumatizing those who have been traumatized in our communities. The seminal study, Adverse Childhood Experiences, or referred to as ACEs, serves as the underpinning of the trauma-informed framework. Kaiser Prominente and the CDC were the sponsors of this study. The ACEs studies makes a strong correlation between the early adverse childhood experiences and mental, physical, substance abuse, and behavioral health outcomes. According to the study, they found that survivors of childhood trauma are 5,000% more likely to attempt suicide, have eating disorders, or become IV drug users. The unfortunate reality of most, for most of the survivors of adverse childhood trauma is that they fail to receive the treatment that is necessary, and they suffer in silence for years, if not for a lifetime. The ACEs study examined 10 types of childhood trauma, the first of those being personal, and the second of those being things that have happened to you or your family members. So looking at the, the five personal, they include physical abuse, verbal abuse, sexual abuse, physical ne neglect, and emotional abuse. And the other ones are if your parents uh, were alcoholics, uh, your mother was a victim of domestic violence, a family member has been in jail, a family member has been diagnosed with a mental illness, or the disappearance of a parent um, via divorce, death, or abandonment. And so each of these domains has a numeric value and the highest score being 10. And so the higher your ACEs score, the more likely you are to develop a health or a social problem. The ACE study realizes that there are other sources of trauma that are not mentioned in this list. Um, for example, fathers being abused by mothers, uh, death of a family member, an individual's involvement in the foster care system, racism, bullying. The trauma types included in the study were the most common in about 300 Kaiser members and have been the most studied in the literature. The ACE study demonstrates a strong correlation between childhood trauma and development of chronic diseases such as diabetes, hypertension, depression, heart disease, autoimmune diseases, and suicide. The participants in this study at least had one ACEs score, and 87% of them had more than one ACEs. Uh, as your ACEs increases, like I said earlier, you do develop uh, diseases such as 
chronic pulmonary lung disease, uh, hepatitis, depression, and attempted suicide. And so one of the things that bothers me about the ACEs study, um, and it's important for us to point out, is that most of the people in this particular study were actually upper middle class white folks that were from San Diego. And so for me, that's problematic in two ways. It's hard to generalize information when people of color were not participants in that study. And then it also underscores the fact that trauma is not relegated to any sort of social class, uh, economic status, race, gender, et cetera. So when we talk about the percentage of individuals who are coming um, into this church, um, there's got to be folks in our congregation who are suffering from trauma. And so while I was asked to talk about this topic, um, it is very, very important that the church be at the forefront of this particular conversation. We don't need the culture to be leading um, in this conversation about trauma because the culture has a, a different way of framing it. But we want, to we want to frame this particular message through the lens of the gospel. And that's why it's important for us to talk about it within the local context. All right? So behind me should be some slides um, that indicate just what I talked about earlier about the chances of the increase of alcoholism um, as it relates to childhood trauma. Um, there's a slide that should talk about the depression um, that is subsequent to childhood trauma, um, the rates of antidepressant use in individuals who experience childhood trauma, um, being raped um, is also one of the uh, outflows of childhood trauma, um, as well as suicide. Um, the ACEs study, while it was also being studied um, at Kaiser Permanente, um, a group of neuroscientists and child psychiatrists were also conducting brain studies. Um, they found that children who were exposed to content, constant toxic stress had changes in brain structures and neurocognitive development, affecting various behaviors. These kids are in the constant fight-or-flight mode, leading to high levels of stress and anxiety. And so in an effort to relieve their stress, shame and guilt, or any anxieties, they, they engage in behaviors or experience the following difficulties. Difficulty learning, all right? You see that a lot in our school systems, um, especially with kids who come from trauma backgrounds. And the unfortunate reality is that oftentimes they get overdiagnosed with ADHD when actually the underlying cause is trauma. Uh, the proliferation of sex partners, um, hypersexual, um, looking for ways to numb the trauma and the pain um, that they've experienced. High-risk sports, um, work and overachievement. So the pathology of toxic stress is referenced in what's called the HPA axis. And the HPA axis is the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. And this is essentially what happens in the brain when you're experiencing constant toxic stress. And so the hypothalamic the hypothalamus actually tells the pituitary glands to secrete hormones uh, in response to certain stressors, um, violence, trauma, uh, sexual assault, and abuse. And the adrenal glands secrete what's uh, a neurotransmitter called cortisol. And so increases in cortisol levels are actually not particularly good for the body long term. So that's what is responsible for obesity. Um, that is what is responsible for diabetes and hypertension. So this creates a negative feedback loop. And if there's no intervention, this person lives in a state of hyperarousal and they never get to return to what is homeostasis or equilibrium. So that's why you see people who are hypervigilant can't be around people. Um, they have flashbacks. They have nightmares. Uh, these are all the subsequent things that happen in the negative feedback loop in the HPA axis. 
and then you have the sympathetic adrenal medullary system, which is the SAM system, and this is our fight or flight response. As I was explaining earlier, uh, the sympathetic system also acts on the adrenal glands and says, you know what, there's some trouble. I need you to release um, some hormones to get me out of this trouble. So that's the fight or flight response. And so just imagine if you're in this fight or flight response for most of your life, what does that look like? You're not, you're not sleeping well. You're not eating well, right? Because your sympathetic nervous system is your fight or flight. So your body wants to go. It does not rest or not, or does it not, it doesn't rest, excuse me, nor does it digest. And so it's in a constant state of wanting to get out of that traumatic situation. The, and so um, there was a book that I read that informed a lot of my scholarship about the ACEs study. Um, and it was by an author named Nadine Burke Harris. And the book is The Deepest Well, Healing the Long Effects, Long-Term Effects of Childhood Adversity. And she states in this book, the main issue that we have when the stress response is activated too frequently or if the stressor is too intense, the body can lose the ability to shut down the HPA and the SAM axis. The term for this disruption of feedback is an inhibition, which is a sciencey way of saying that the body's stress thermostat, thermostat is broken. Instead of shutting off the supply of heat when a center point is reached, it just keeps blasting cortisol through the system. In 2018, I found myself in the throes of what I can only describe in layman's terms as a nervous breakdown. It was the second semester of my doctoral program, and my childhood trauma came knocking at my door. At the age of five, two young men sexually assaulted me who had been brought into my family as a result of the foster care system. So my coming-of-age story has been colored with hiding and keeping secrets. In the book, The Body Keeps the Score, The Brain, Mind, and Body and Healing of Trauma, the author states, as long as you keep secrets and suppress information, you fundamentally are at war within yourself. The critical issue is allowing yourself to know what you know, and that takes enormous amounts of courage. At that time, my theology on suffering informed my decision to stay in hiding. I heard a message about suffering as lack of faith. People would say, you are too blessed to be stressed. Old things have passed away, and behold, all things have become new. And while I did have a new identity in Christ, it did not negate the necessary work that I needed to do in order to work through my trauma. Subsequently, this forced me into a life of performance-based acceptance, deceitfulness, and habitual discontentment with any and everything that was less than perfection. While I had a new identity in Christ, my body and mind bore the marks of a trauma now ingrained in my DNA. This author goes on to say that traumatized people chronically feel unsafe in their own bodies. The past is alive in the form of gnawing internal discomfort. Their bodies are constantly bombarded with visceral warning signs, and in an, in an attempt to control this process, they often become experts at knowing their gut feelings and numbing their awareness of what is played out inside and they learn to hide from themselves. This story, for many of us who survive trauma, is all too often too common. However, I am encouraged that the gospel speaks to my trauma story in ways that understands my brokenness and gives me a liberating hope in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Throughout the Bible, specifically in the book of 2 Corinthians, there are what are called gospel paradoxes. 
Through Christ, we are comforted in our afflictions. Uh, that is 2 Corinthians, the first chapter, uh, 3 through 13. We experience riches in our poverty. Eight, chapter 8, verses 9, and we experience strength in the moments of our weakness. As we look at 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 7, which is our text for this morning, we want to look at trauma experiences through the lens of the gospel. The suffering of this world may be many, but having the right perspective of God's grace and his love through suffering determines how we experience the joy and freedom that God promises. The scripture says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our afflictions so that we may be, we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you also share in our comfort. The Genesis account of the fall of man had implications for all of God's creation, including the mind. The mind is the central processing unit for all body functioning. The mind, like any other organ in the body, has the ability to either function or to malfunction, in which case individuals who have been exposed to any trauma of any kind may find themselves in the throes of mental illness, such as depression, anxiety, and post-traumatic stress disorder. Second Corinthians situates itself into our trauma narrative, offering us a Christ-centered hope. This passage also offers the sufferer a glimpse into the life of a fellow sufferer who has found comfort in the midst of trials and tribulations of various kinds. We can offer the comfort many so desperately seek when we have comfort in the hope offered by the gospel through Jesus Christ. Oh. Oh. Yeah. Paulison states, by holding the God and Father of Jesus Christ in view, a wise counselor can patiently enter every person's uniquely complex afflictions. In good conscience, you can care too much for others to ever omit the source of mercies and all comfort. May God be praised for the inner person immediacy of his mercy and for how, he comfort, for how his comfort cascades from us, from him to us and from us to each other. He goes on to help us um, really look at 2 Corinthians um, through the perspective of, of three perspectives. What afflicts us? What does it mean to be comforted? And how does God comfort us? 2 Corinthians 1.4 says, Who comforts us in all afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort which we, which we, which we ourselves are comforted by God? This verse does not give us a specific affliction. This gives, us, it gives the reader an opportunity to insert whatever afflictions have been afflicting them. This is a catch-all. Whether you are suffering as a result of sin or what happened to you, trauma presents itself in sundry ways. The fallen state of humanity is an opportunity for us to experience immense, immense fellowship 
both vertically and horizontally. However, throughout 2 Corinthians, Paul does give us specific examples of his own afflictions. He's like, don't get it twisted. I do have afflictions of my own. I'm not saying them specifically in the beginning of the chapter, but I want to let you know that I have suffered afflictions. And one of those uh, afflictions that Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians, the first chapter, 8 through 10, is the unrelenting stress. He says, for we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we have experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we were despaired of life. Now, don't read into this that Paul was having suicidal thoughts or ideations. But Paul understood and he held in light of the gospel that this was his temporary home. And that the afflictions that he found himself in were great. But they were not great, greater than the surpassing riches that we experience through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Persecution in 2 Corinthians 4, 7 through 12. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to which we sh- to show the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but we are not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body of death Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal bodies, so that death is at work in us but life in you. Paul experiences suffering, anguish, daily anxiety, and tears because he cares so deeply for God's people. When the Corinthians or anyone who we love goes astray or suffers trauma, we should feel that. 2 Corinthians 2, 3-4 says, I write as I did so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you, for I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Paul was demonstrating his love for God's people by saying, I love you in the midst of your pain, in the midst of your suffering. I see you and I'm here for you. He also goes on to say in 2 Corinthians 11:28 through 29, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fail and I am not indignant? Paulison says, caring brought responsibility and that meant feeling stress and distress when others are floundering. Caring presses you to do something to help because Paul held the Corinthians in his heart as beloved children. He stayed involved. God cares in the same fashion. To follow Jesus creates a willingness to love others. Paul demonstrates this kind of love and care for sufferers by faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, not in his own strength. 2 Corinthians 4.17 says that this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. His promise of grace and peace in the midst of our suffering would not allow for temporal hardships to overshadow that which matters the most, eternal life in Jesus Christ. What does it mean to be comforted in, su- in suffering? Paul speaks of comfort in 2 Corinthians 1, 3-7 at least 10 times. Why? Because he understands that we live between the already and the not yet. 
and we would need the comfort of God's word and the fellowship of the saints on a daily basis. We live in a culture that engenders comfort. I'm going to date myself for just a little bit. I know that some of you guys remember the song by Vanessa Williams called Welcome to the Comfort Zone. When you got into the comfort zone, according to Vanessa Williams, you got on this boat and it was smooth sailing. And from here on out, there was nothing that could bother you, right? Not so in the body of Christ. Um, We look to food. Um, We look to various vices to numb the pains of breakups or the stress of a workday. But these are all passive forms of comfort. And that is not what the kingdom of God has for us. Um, Paulison says that God's comfort is not passive. And it, it, as it, God's comfort is not a passive experience, and it does not remove painful struggle. His comfort transforms the meaning of what is hard and creates a different kind of struggle as he gives you purpose, strengthens our trust, energizes our caring, and teaches wisdom. Affliction is where God develops you as a person so that your trust and your love come into fruition. Let me say that again. Affliction is where God develops you as a person so that your trust and your love come into fruition. God's comfort does not make our lives easier. On the contrary, when adding the burden of caring, life can seem overwhelming. It is in these moments of vulnerability that God gives us courage. He hardens our disheartened hearts and he gives us strength to encourage our neighbors. What does God do? Uh, how does God actually comfort us? Well, I don't want to state the obvious, but uh, Jesus Christ, um, that's been made plain throughout uh, 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 7. Um, but Paulison gives us, um, you know, points us to eight ways specifically that God um, allows us to be comforted in our sufferings. The first one is God comforts us by how he communicates his care in words. Um, coming out of the gate in 2 Corinthians 1, um, verse 2, he says, Grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That demonstrates a love for, his, for that, that particular church and that congregation. And then he says in verse 20, For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. 2 Corinthians 5, 4, 14 through 15 says, For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him, for their sake, died and was raised. God comforts us by what he does. This is God's love in action. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 18 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, all things have become new. All this from God, who through Christ Jesus reconciles us, Asa, to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. This is the proper place where this this particular verse um, needs to be in my life. Um, It wasn't that I was working through the trauma or I needed to work through trauma on my own. That's called white knuckling it. It was through what Christ had did on the cross for me that now I understand that I can walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling that is placed upon my life. And I don't have to do that in my own strength. Right? And my trauma, although it has given me a particular limp, it has made me stronger 
so I can demonstrate the love and the comfort that God has given me because he has comforted me through my trials and my tribulations. All right. Amen. Second Corinthians 5, 1 through 5 says, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in heaven. For in this tent we groan, longing to put our heavenly dwelling, put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. What happens to us in this life is valid, but it should never become our identity. It should, it should never become our identity. I am not my trauma. Amen. Let me say that again. I am not my trauma. My identity is found in Christ. For those of you who found yourself in situations um, similar to mine or different, um, your eternity is not predicated on your suffering. Your eternity is predicated on the fact that Christ gave up his life for us as a ransom and that while we were yet still sinners, Christ died for us. And so if you're listening to me and you're hearing me talk about suffering through the lens of the gospel and you have not yet heard a clear presentation of the gospel or if your eyes have not been opened to the gospel, I want you to talk to the person that brought you here. Or if you can't, if no one brought you here and you came on your own, talk to somebody in this congregation. Um, we here at ARC, like I said earlier, we don't take ourselves serious, but we take the gospel serious. And the only way that I can stand before you today with a mind that is together and with a mind that has stayed on the Lord is because of the perfect work of Jesus Christ. So that leads me to my next point, is that God comforts us by his loving presence. Um, 2 Corinthians 1.4, it says, Who comforts us in all of our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in many afflictions with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God? 2 Corinthians 3, 17 through 18 says, Now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we are all with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to the other. For this comes from the Lord, who is the spirit. And again, in my suffering, in the longings that I have, God is bringing me and he's transforming me into the likeness of his son. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And so my reputation had to die. My view of myself had to die. What I thought was important had to die. Those things were not in their proper place. They were idols. And they had taken the place in the seat um, that Christ sits on in my heart. And so the subsequent things that happened um, was bad relationships. I, I like to say that I lived in public isolation for the most part. Meaning I was known by everybody but not known by anybody. And so now because of the work that Christ has done in my heart and in my life, I am now fully known, right? I want to be known. I want to experience community in ways that used to scare me but that are now growth fostering. I want to be able to stand before a congregation and say, great is the Lord, our conqueror. He has never failed me yet. All right? So in the moments of trauma, as my sister said, anxiety has a way of coming in and out and doing various things and causing you to think 
all sorts of things in our lives. But God has never failed me once. And so when the promises of God and trauma feel distant or they don't feel real, doubt your doubts. Trust on God's word. Let, let the word of God penetrate in your heart and your minds. Don't let your thoughts be the pervasive um, voice in your life because they can lead you to and fro. You can be tossed by every wind and wave, right? And so like Arika, I, I had the same experience. I just said to the Lord one day, um, the trauma and the weight of what it was doing to my body was so strong. I just said, today, Lord, I'm going to lose my mind. And God said, you're not going to lose your mind. <laughs> and I can laugh about it now because it was not funny at the time. Um, it, was, it caused me great peril. It caused me great distress. Um, and the beauty of that is, is that I had a congregation that I could come to. I had a father who welcomed me as I was. And so he was not trying to say, Asa, you got to be perfect. Because I had that in my mind that in order for me to be loved or accepted in community, that I had to present myself as being perfect. And that was the furthest thing from the truth. And so, not, so now the liberty and the freedom that comes from the gospel lives in me. And now I can give that away to other people freely. All right. So I think I'm going to go on to my next point. Um, God comforts us by how other people communicate their care in words. Um, again, I'm going to read 2 Corinthians 2, 8 through 11. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I write that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that he would not be out, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Saints, we need each other. Forgiveness and how we handle one another is key to how we come out on the other side of trauma. Um, your words, they need to be seasoned with grace, right? Your attitude and your posture toward people needs to reflect the love and the redemptive power that you've experienced in Jesus Christ because that's one of the number one ways that we can traumatize people. It's even, not even saying words, but in our body language. That's why it's important when people are coming through the doors of our church that they feel welcome because this might be the only opportunity that they get to see the love of Christ lived out in a way that's transformative. So we don't want to be the person that is a stumbling block for our brothers and sisters to experience the healing, right? And then we want to be transparent. One of the other points that I made earlier is the transparency. So now I have the ability to talk about the pain and the things that cause me great anguish and that cause me to live a life of secrecy and deceitfulness of sin for many, many years. How many people do you think that come through those doors that have that same story and that are looking for ways to be set free, right? And whom the Son sets free is free indeed. And so we have the freedom, right? And that is the good news of Jesus Christ. And so we want to be as best as we can to be a congregation that is in, informed by trauma and to also be able to transform individuals' lives through the gospel as we love and care for one another. All right? Um, God comforts us by loving a loving presence of other people. Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace, and the God of love and peace be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Man, you don't know how many times I've come into this place, and you all have hugged me. You've loved on me. You've given me words of affirmation. 
you have shown me what it means to be accepted. Um, I could go on and on about my story, but I want to make the gospel front and center. Um, you and your love for me has been an extension of the hands and feet of Jesus Christ. There have been times when I said, I have to throw in the towel. This is too hard. This is too heavy of a burden for me to bear. And someone will come up and say, man, Asa, your smile, just the way that you come in all joyful every Sunday, that blesses me. Or, you know what, man, you gave me a ride or you let me, have a, you let me host something at my house or at your house. And I'm like, cool. And so those things, albeit small at that moment, those things have transformed my heart and, um, and has helped me to continue to walk uh, in faith. And so don't take that lightly. Your presence could be someone's presence. I remember Pastor Dennis, and I, I want to point him out real quick. Uh, one Sunday I was in the throes of anxiety, and I normally sat on the corner in those times by myself. And one Sunday I decided to sit between Dennis and his family. And the comfort of being placed between a family, because I come from a, a broken home, that just assuaged a lot of my fears and my anxiety just by being present in somebody's presence that understood, that didn't ask a lot of questions of me, but just loved me where I was. And so I want to say thank you to Pastor Dennis uh, for that. Um, I'm going to get into trouble, but I'm going to name another brother, Peter Noble. Um, the Noble Noble. <laughs> um, he was one of the ones that saw me at my, my lowest, and uh, he and his mother uh, who was in the back, they loved me well. They would invite me to their home, and they would say, Asa, hey, so just come in. And I was telling Peter, hey, man, listen, I'm, I'm falling apart. I'm unraveling. And Peter and his Peter way would just be like, praise the Lord. <laughs> that, that just means that God is working in your heart. Isn't he good? <laughs> and I would look at this brother like he had two heads. <laughs> But the fact of the matter is, is that Peter had a perspective about suffering that I did not. And had his response been that of mine, we could not have been an encouragement to one another. It was his steadfast love and his understanding of the gospel that rescued his brother. And so that's what I mean by when you are strengthened and you have been comforted with the comfort of, that comes from Jesus Christ, go back as a responsibility and strengthen your brother because they need that. And that has made all the difference in my life. Um, I'm going to stay on topic because I'm getting a little bit off. But um, one of the other points that I wanted to make was um, God comforts us as we are growing um, or we see other people's faith. And, um, and that is demonstrated in how people walk through pain and suffering. And I want to name another person in this church, um, and that's Miss Teresa. Um, during my time of struggle and... Um, and my trauma, I went to visit the sister at church, in, in the hospital who had just had a stroke. And um, I'm thinking, I'm going to go in and I'm, I'm going to have to muster up um, some comfort for the sister. And as I turn the corner, she says to me, brother, we serve a good God. Great is our Lord. He's worthy to be praised. And I said, wow, in the midst of the suffering and the pain that she must be experiencing in this hospital bed, she was able to comfort me with those words. And so your ability to be patient and to endure hardships becomes less about grit and more about joy and hope and comfort and purpose as you see that demonstrated in the lives of other people. Lastly, um, I'm going to talk about 2 Corinthians 6, verses 4 through 11. 
And it says, but as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit's genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left hand through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise. We are treated as impostors and yet we are true, as unknown and yet we are known, as dying and behold we live, as punished yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. The rehab of our lives, according to uh, Paulison, the rehab of our lives is often slow and halting with many twists and turns, but the Spirit work, will work His fruit. May He grant each of us to know that our faith is deepening in stability, clarity, and honesty. Um, I'm going to leave you with something. As my brother Terrence Moore and Stephanie, have, who have also uh, been pillars in my walk um, as I walk through trauma, um, my boy has a, uh, a podcast um, for, for the godly on the go. And he always gives us a, a to-go plate. And so today I want to I pack you guys up a to-go plate and something to ponder about trauma and what that looks like through the lens of the gospel. Um, first of all, the road to, to recovery from trauma is not always a finished product. It is a process. So I stand before you in process. The sanctification that God promises in his word is working itself out in me today. And so I want to encourage you with that and think about that. Trauma is not linear, logical, and goal-directed. It has many twists and turns. Trauma does not fit neatly into our compartmental lives. It can show up in ways, and you can be triggered in ways that you don't even imagine. But just know that the God of comfort is there in those moments. Trauma is what happens to you, and it is not your identity. Your ultimate identity is in Christ Jesus, and hold fast to that truth. Walking alongside others is essential in the healing process. Let yourself be known and be fully known by people. You'll be surprised at what people will journey with you through if you understand or be authentic and truthful about who you are and what you're experiencing. And the last thing is the Spirit will work out its perfect work in us. So let us hold fast together and let us heal together um, as we continue in the, between the already and the not yet and uh, as we wait um, the return of our Heavenly Father. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for this time. We thank you for your word. We thank you that we are comforted by your truth, uh, that your love, it never fails. Uh, it never gives up on us. Uh, your word uh, is the lamp unto our feet, and it is a light unto our path. Um, I thank you, Lord God, that there is in your word healing for every situation. Um, I think about the Psalms, and I think about uh, just the goodness and the calamities and all of those things that uh, the psalmist wrote uh, that speaks to every human emotion, that speaks to every human experience, um, that you are not caught off guard by our suffering, Lord God, is that we serve a God who is sovereign, uh, that has providence over our lives. And so, God, we pray that you would use our sufferings to bring you glory uh, because we know that this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us a weight in glory, and it pales in comparison to that glory that shall be revealed to us. And so, Father, we wait uh, eagerly groaning to leave this earth suit, uh, to one day be 
uh, in a position to where our faith is made sight. But until then, hold us fast, oh God. And we thank you in your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen.